Wow. Okay, that makes me feel better. I'm so nervous. Um, so I thought I would share like a little story just to set some intention for the day. Um, and everybody that's coming in, hi in the back. Um, hopefully everybody can hear. <sighs> so, well, first I'm going to get emotional. <laughs> um, so when I was a teenager, um, I was like obsessed with those little daily tear-off calendars um, that like you'd wake up and pull for the next day. So I think one year I had like a vocabulary one. Um, another year I know it was the Far Side cartoons. Um, but my favorite, which I think I had at least three years in a row, was Life's Little Instructions by H. Jackson Brown. And it had these like simple instructions for living your life. So some were as simple as never refuse homemade brownies. Good. Um, have a firm handshake. And then there were more poignant ones like be forgiving of yourself and others. And my favorite, which I kept um, pinned to a board above my bed through like high school and college and early adult life, was. <laughs> Thanks. Um, whew, never let the odds keep you from pursuing what you know in your heart you were meant to do. And that quote like led my life through. Um, like going to a college that was like really far away from home but was very prestigious and felt like the right thing to do um, to pursuing a career in hospitality despite said prestigious university degree um, to opening my own business. And it continues to lead because here we are today launching a little something called the Batonage Forum. <laughs> I did not think I would be so emotional. Um, <laughs> the Batonage form truly did start as a little something. Um, I thought that maybe there would be like a few people that would be interested in getting together and like casually talking about issues that women in our industry faced. Um, a mere seven months after conceiving the thing with a few people that are here today, uh, we're here with about 330 people in attendance. <laughs> Never let the odds keep you from pursuing what you know in your heart you were meant to do. There were way too many odds stacked against pulling this event off. Um, I literally began with no budget. I had no time in between um, recently having a baby and also running my own business. Um, I had no venue. I had no board of directors. And let's be honest, I had no real experience in pulling off an event of this size. Um, time and again through the past seven months, the hurdles to producing this event weighed, like, really heavily, fully convincing me that the odds of pulling it off successfully were way too great. And yet, there was my heart. There were your hearts. In them was this conviction that we were meant to make this shit happen. <laughs> There were too many of us way too eager to support, too inspired by the issues, and too adamant that we push for solutions. Never let the odds keep you from pursuing what you know in your heart you are meant to do. 
So here we are. Um, I still can't actually believe it. And until later tonight when wine hour starts, I'm probably going to have deep anxiety that something's going to go wrong today. Um, it's really hot out or it's about to get really hot out. So I hope we have enough sunscreen and big hats to go around. I hope our ice delivery comes. I hope the lunch is good. Um, uh, more so, I hope our discussion is fruitful. I hope, sincerely, albeit perhaps naively, that everyone leaves here powerfully inspired and encouraged. Let's face it, these topics have the very real ability to tumble towards negativity, to instigate a fight or flight response, to turn otherwise well-meaning folks dark or bitter. Inevitably, I believe each of you will be a little bit disappointed in some aspect of today, maybe in the conversation, maybe in our humble execution of the event, or our vulnerable moderating of the panels. Maybe you'll be upset that that person over there actually said whatever they said. You'll probably be upset that we've tried to cram way too much intense conversation into way too little time. Despite all that, I pray that today would stay positive, remain hopeful, that we'd be able to see beyond disappointment and toward the bright horizon. I am totally humbled at today's turnout. If anything, let this attendance keep you encouraged. Sincere thanks to every single one of you for being here, for setting an intention to drive progress in our industry and for upholding one another. Never let the odds keep you from pursuing what you know in your heart you were meant to do. We have very big things ahead of us. Um, in the realm of thanks, let me just quickly wrap up with a brief but profoundly sincere note of thanks to my team who rallied behind this cause and really kept the odds of producing batonage favorable. Sarah Bray, my very, very dear friend. Um, and the real reason why this event is actually even taking place, she is the chief orchestrator for Batonage. Uh, Nicole Ruiz Hudson, my incredible colleague. <laughs> Nicole is also the social media maven for Batonage, so don't be alarmed if she's taking your picture today. Um, and Samantha Sheehan. <laughs> Sam is the total Batonage save the dayer, yes woman, and our hostess with the mostest. Um, thank you also to the women who provided invaluable assistance with event planning and execution. Um, I don't know where you all are, but Molly Sherman, um, Sophie Hirsch, Sophie Barbu, and the entire uh, UC Davis advance team. And thank you also to our sponsors and our partners, Wine Direct, for their supreme generosity and their enthusiasm, um, my entire team and all of our guests at Bay Grape, the ladies at Cadet, 750 Daily, the Olive Street Agency, Tossware, San Pellegrino, and La Tavola Linens. Um, and also a huge note of thanks to all the winemakers who donated their wine and their time today for the tasting afterwards. And thank you finally to all the voices who offered thoughts and wisdom and intention for this conversation. Of course, today's speakers and panelists, but also those um, who couldn't be here today and yet share their stories with me as the event took shape. Last but not least, thank you to my mother, for giving me life and ambition. <laughs> Thank you to my husband, Josiah, for always standing proudly by my side. And thank you to my two sons, Napoleon, who is running around here and gave me lots of stress-relieving snuggles, and sweet baby Foxen, who couldn't make it today, but he is literally the future that we are setting up for success. 
And on that note, um, without further ado, I am so excited to usher us into today's conversations by introducing Dr. Linda Besson, Professor Emeritus and Associate Director of UC Davis Advance. Thank you, Stevie. This is an absolute wonderful event, and I personally salute you for not taking no for an answer. This is what we need to just power on through. So uh, congratulations. Okay, so we're gonna start the day with a little exercise. And so my advanced folks, I think, are handing you uh, packets that have picture on one side, picture on the other side. What I want you to do, there's space for you to write down comments. What I want you to do is first words that pop into your head when you see the photo. Just write them down and then we'll collect them. Because what we're going to be talking about today is this phenomenon called implicit bias. And Stevie's right. People tend to get really upset when you bring this up and you say you have bias. And we all have bias. Everybody has bias. But the word implicit was coined by psychologists to mean that it is outside our level of awareness. So it's sometimes called unconscious bias, but the purists say implicit because it's part unconscious, part subconscious. But it is unconscious, subconscious. So for me, it's like I don't hold anybody deeply responsible for something their unconscious brain is doing. Right, because uh, we need to address it, we need to understand it, we need to figure out how to change it, how to modify it, so that we have the inclusive society that we want. And I really loved when Stevie first contacted me, because I've been working on diversity at the university, I just retired, I've been working on diversity issues since I started, so for 30 years. And when we started the advanced program, I had a colleague that he and I had been on just about every diversity committee campus system-wide had. And so here I came, he was chair of the, the Affirmative Action Diversity Committee of the Senate. So I come to the Senate and I say, here's the new plan. And he looked at me and he said, I've known you for 30 years. You and I have been working on these issues for 30 years. We've lost so many battles. Why are you still doing this? And I said, because I'm winning the war. I don't care about how many battles are being lost, I'm winning the war. This shows me we're winning the war. Okay, um, so I guess I don't know how far along we are with handing out the sheets. So write it down and then just pass it over to the end because I, 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 I want to make sure everybody's had the opportunity to do that before I start telling you what you should be writing down. <laughs> okay, so when I first started learning about implicit bias and the phenomenon of implicit bias and took my first class in implicit bias, I was suddenly struck with the knowledge that I'd been teaching a version of this for years in the wine production course. And so what I want to begin with is explaining how our brains work. And I'm going to start with explaining how our brains work with something we all know, which is the evaluation of wine aroma. Now, if you had the opportunity to take a course from Ann Noble, the absolute mother of sensory science in wine, 
Uh, she would tell you that wine aroma comes from four components, four processes. The physiology, experience, expectations, and preference. So let's start with physiology. Starting from birth, we start recognizing compounds and associating them with things. Now, experts tell me that we can only detect with our sensors about 120 compounds. So we really don't just say, I can only smell 120 things because there's one compound per thing. Basically, what we're doing is everything we smell is a mixture of compounds of the 120. And so we're de developing patterns. So we smell something, that's this pattern, that gets sets in our brain, that's that pattern. So strawberry, it's this pattern. Cherry, that pattern. Dirt, that pattern. And then we start putting things in categories. And the category that we use most often is food or not food. And then if it is food, what kind of food is it? So we normally uh, do all that processing just spontaneously. You know, you don't have to smell something and wait five minutes while you slowly process and figure out that it's strawberry. I mean, it's instantaneous. So this is designed so that we as humans will make snap judgments about whether we should eat something or whether we should run in the opposite direction because that smell means that there is some danger coming. Now, obviously, experience plays an important role because if I've never smelled something, I don't have a pattern for it. You know, so if someone says, wow, this is really strong mango, and I've never had mango, I'm not going to know what they're talking about. But it might be reminiscent of maybe some other type of fruit to me when I smell it. But I can learn that it's mango. I mean, I can have mango five, six times, and then boom, my brain says, OK, yeah, that's the pattern we associate with mango. So it is malleable, even though it is unconscious. So unconscious is malleable. Now, there's other things with experience that are less malleable. And so the classic example is Sauvignon Blanc. You know, the aroma of Sauvignon Blanc. Is it box tree or cat urine? If it's the same pattern of compounds, and if I have experienced it as box tree, then cat urine smells like the bushes, and I'm fine with it. If it's cat urine, then I'm not going to like a wine that has a strong, intense smell of cat urine. And that starts playing to my preferences. You know, that if I pick up that smell, I'm not going to like whatever it is because my experience with that was kitty litter box. And so it's kind of hard to change, to change some things when it's been sort of hardwired into your brain. But I can still appreciate that box tree is box tree. And actually, the tree smells like the cat for a reason, because if you have that aroma of a predator, then you're not going to be eaten by rodents. You know, so that's Mother Nature in action. So our experiences are important in terms of how we process inputs, sensory inputs. Now, it starts to get a little bit funkier when we go to the subconscious things like expectations. So the classic wine expectation messing with your head experiment is to have a white wine, two glasses, same wine, spike one with either red food coloring or put some anthocyanins in it, and then ask people to evaluate it. A lot of people will give you red characters for the red wine, even though it's identical to the white wine. Now, my version of doing that experiment is to present the two wines in black glasses, black wine glasses, because I love black wine glasses. Have people smell it, say, what's the difference? 
That's no difference, no difference. You sure there's no difference? There's no difference. Okay, here's the clear glasses. Pour the wines into the clear glass. And they do it, and they see that one of them's red, and they're like, wow, black glass totally suppresses red wine characters. <laughs> but not white wine characters. And I'm like, no, it doesn't. Yeah, it does. I'm like, no, it doesn't. What you're not smelling is the color. And lots of studies have been done with different foods, and color is perceived as aroma. And we know we can do the same thing with, with Pinot Noir. The more darkly colored, especially with novice uh, consumers, the more fruity they will say it is, you know, the higher the fruit character. Again, you can do it in black glasses. They can't tell a difference. Put it in a clear glass. This one is the one that has the more intense fruit flavor when it really doesn't. So color trumps actual aroma processing. So it's an example of this higher order processing that our brain's doing that really has nothing to do with the original sensory input, you know, with these experiences. Now, expectations um, can go beyond that to uh, there's differences across the population. Some of us have very strong categories. And it only has to have one thing, like color, to get thrown into that category as far as our brain is concerned. And then others of us have what's called high causal uncertainty. And it's like, yeah, I know it looks like a duck, it walks like a duck, it quacks like a duck, but I'm still not sure it's a duck. Whereas someone else is like, it's quacking, you know, it's a duck. So there are differences across the population in how we develop these categories and how strongly we become attached to them. Now, the final component of wine aroma evaluation is preference. And if we like something, we tend to not notice any of the defects. Um, we can, in fact, if we like something and we know what it is, uh, our brain will tell us it smells exactly like that, even if there's someone like me going, really, you're not getting that strong stench of hydrogen sulfide in your wine? Um, you know, because that's been processed out. Now, one of the... the Scary things for me with this processing things out is the phenomenon you guys know of cork taint or trichloroanisole. When I started teaching winemaking, maybe one out of 1,000 or 10,000 students could not detect it. So it's very rare, the inability to detect it. Uh, the last year that I taught it, which was two years ago, was 40% of the class could not pick out TCA in a heavily spiked wine. And so I was like, what is going on? Well. Turns out that if you're a fan of baby carrots and you like the bright orange of the baby carrots, baby carrots are steeped in TCA because of the way they process them. When I tell people, okay, you can't find the thing that I'm calling moldy, how about carrot? About half of those people can find the wine that has the carrot in it, but they're not put off by it at all. It's like, it's just carrot. And then the other half can't find even when you tell them it's carrot. And so when I looked at those two groups and I'm like, okay, do you really like baby carrots? <laughs> the ones who cannot pick it out in wine love baby carrots. You know, so it's, it's an example of how preference can really change how you perceive the world. And so you don't see something that's basically right in front of your nose. Um, or you can imagine that there's nothing there and it's perfect. It's the way that you liked it. So, what happens when we switch from aromas to people? Well, it's the same kind of phenomenon. When we start out as infants, you all, I know, have had experience with the toddler who's doing the judgmental stare of your face. 
they're processing your face. And it's going into, like we have the chemical smell database, it's going into the image database of faces. So first thing we do is we gather faces. Then, as we did with chemicals where we made patterns from the faces, we start making patterns from faces that look like this, do this. Right, so we start to build up patterns. And then from those patterns come categories or identities in the case of humans. So the first identities that we learn are gender identities. What do moms do, what do dads do, what do little girls do, what do little boys do. And so we learn what that identity is. We learn what the traits are of people who have that identity. And then we can decide whether we share that identity and want to express those same traits or not. Right? So it starts when we're children. Now we have a multitude of identities. We're all the intersection of multiple identities. So there's gender, there's race, there's culture, there's ethnicity, there's region where you live, you know, your Californian identity, Napa identity, Bay Area identity. Uh, there are religious identities, there are political identities, there's identities even that come from work or your profession, where there are descriptors of what it takes or what you should be to be ideal or to be representative of that group. So each one of us is an intersection of multiple identities. And that makes each one of us an individual. So we all have individuality. Our experiences build upon our identities and so each of us is a rich, wonderful individual. Now we are happiest, psychologists tell you we're all happiest when we are treated as a complex individual, right? So you're all the things that you think you are, I think you're all the things you think you are, you fit in the tribe, you have high self-confidence of who you are and what you can do, you just go you know, and live your best life. Now what happens is when an identity becomes defining of you. So you lose your individuality to an identity. Now the one that we're probably most familiar with, I'm sure everybody here is familiar with this, is that women are nurturers. Okay, so that is such a part of someone's core they don't even think about it. You know, if there's a child that needs to be comforted, where's the woman who's supposed to do it? You know, I mean, so it becomes part of your core. Now, if I'm hiring for a position, and we've numerous experiments have done with this, I might say the guy's more qualified if they have an identical, identical CV. And when you ask people, why is the guy more qualified? Well, it requires leadership. Well, she has as much evidence of leadership as he does, and then people start to say, well, she's overstating her leadership, and he's probably understating it. And it's like, what? That's not true. Or oftentimes people say things like, oh, a nurturer leads from behind, I need someone to lead from in front. And we know what happens when a woman leads from in front, right? You are bossy, you know, because You've stepped out of that nurturer identity. Now the person who's saying all this stuff isn't realizing that it's coming from that narrowed identity of this is who you are and this is all that you can do. I mean, because you're limited by your identity. But you don't have your individuality, which says, yes, I am a nurturer and I can friggin' lead a battle. You know, so I can do it all. So you, you, you've lost that, that um, component of individuality. 
Now there's other ways that this harms you, and that is say you do get that leadership position, CEO position, whatever, and a mistake happens. Maybe a direct report, maybe not a direct report, but mistake happens. Guess what? If you're a woman, you're responsible. If you're male, you're accountable. Again, it's the nurturer thing. They screwed up because you failed to teach them to nurture them. You were the bad parent. Whereas for men, you get the break of, well, oh yeah, you're the boss, so you're accountable, and you can't know what everybody's doing, so it's your responsibility to fire them now, but you're not responsible for what they did. You're accountable. So that can also happen. Now, before everybody thinks, well, men got it easy. What if you're a guy and you're a nurturer? Okay, so usually when I have students <laughs> I'm talking about this and they're like, no, if I have someplace, airport, wherever I am with my toddler, toddler starts behaving badly, there's always some woman that's gonna come up and say, let me take them because I can quiet them down. Like, you know, you're totally incompetent, you know, as a nurturer. So it can also have the flip side of disadvantaging another person who wants to be a nurturer. More often than not, when we have, have um, colleagues, female colleagues who have husbands who have chosen to uh, be the primary caregiver and stay at home, they will say they go to dinners, even at Davis, they go to dinner at Davis and get asked, well, have you thought about training for a different career? And it's like, different career? Well, yeah, obviously you failed at something because you're the house husband, so, so you know, did you think about trying to get trained to do something else? This all stems from this bias that we create, that we learn, that we learn, that we learn from not just direct interactions. It'd be easy if we only learned from direct interactions because it's hard to directly interact with someone and see them as a single identity. I mean, a single identity. You see them as an individual. But remember I said that it was image-driven. So what are things that show us images repeatedly? But one of the big things that really drives a lot of the biases that we have are commercials. Because you see it constantly, the same thing. Women portrayed this way, boom, 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 boom. You see it thousands of times if you're watching television. If you're a little kid, you probably see it all the time. And then that starts to build these patterns and expectations of what people are supposed to do. And it starts to narrow them down to having that one identity or single story, as, as some psychologists call it. You're just a single story. You don't have, have a complex identity. Now, this, we've talked a lot about gender, but it's other identities that can be um, equally narrowing for a person or an individual. So any of the identities, race, anything, religion, you think you know what the person is, is all about. Now, implicit bias really becomes an issue when we migrate from direct experiences to expectations. So remember I talked about that with wine, we're now getting into sort of some higher brain processing. We do the same thing. So if I have the less experiences I have with an identity, the more likely I am to have, oops, the more likely I am to have reduced them to a stereotype. So that's a caricature of an identity. So now you're not even just an identity, you're a caricature of an identity. And the way you can tell that someone has done that is that, um, you know, for example, we recently had a speaker who came, came to campus, Sean Harper, who's from USC, and he uh, works a lot on race issues in education. And he said he was giving a seminar in the Midwest somewhere, 
didn't name the college, and said, he's talking, discussing these issues, and, and a hand goes up. And so he said, okay, fine. He encouraged, said he encourages questions during, during his presentations. And the person said, but that's not how black people think. And so he's like, what? You're like, that's not how black people think. So he's like, okay, how many black people do you know? And the student said, none. And he's like, so you're telling me a black man how black people think, and you've like never interacted with a black person. The kid was like, yeah. <laughs> and he was like, okay, that's called a stereotype. So he turned it into a teaching moment for everybody else. Here's a stereotype, because when it's a stereotype, you get really upset that that person is not matching the stereotype, and you will correct them and tell them, that's not who you are, this is who you are. And then that becomes what's called a microaggression. I mean, you're not just telling them this is who, who you are. You're saying, and you have to act according to this stereotype, which becomes you know, quite negative. So there are um, many stereotypes that are out there. Any identity can be reduced to a stereotype. Now, one of the things that I want to make clear is that any identity can be reduced to a stereotype. Because one of the issues that always comes up is, you know who the enemy is? It's white males, because they've got it easy. There is no such thing as a white male negative stereotype. They have it easy. And then I respond with, okay, three words, jerk, jock, nerd. Any identity can have a negative stereotype. The problem becomes when you only see the person as that stereotype, when you refuse to see them as an individual, when you refuse to even see them as the identity you know, that they might ascribe to based on ethnicity or, you know, gender. So those become really strong negative forces that interplay with how we react with people, the snap judgments we make when we meet people, and the phenomenon that's called otherness. You know, so that when you get upset with someone, first thing you want to do, television aside, is kick them out of the tribe. You know, so if you saw the, I think it was Fox, the two panelists on Fox, um, where the um, 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 black panelist had said something that angered the white panelist. So he said, you are out of your cotton-picking mind. And then he apologized for it later. And what he said, he goes, I don't know why I reduced it to like this, this racial slur. Well, I know why. you upset. He's now not part of the tribe, and you're going to say something that says you are an other. Remind them of their race, remind them of their place in history, and say, you know, I'm angry with you. The main point that I'm trying to make with that is that you cannot have a conversation with a stereotype. Two stereotypes cannot have conversations with each other. You know, so just watch any of those news programs where they start out okay because they bring in the conservative and the liberal, and then they have an issue, and they say, let's talk about this issue. And I'm always like, I wonder how long, let's count, until it devolves to where they start telling each other what they think. You know, so you'll see, well, you're a liberal, so you think this way. Well, you're a conservative, so you think, well, you think, and I'm like, you can't have a conversation if you do that. So one of the things I want us to do today is to just, this is a safe space. We're all in the wine industry. That's our common core identity. So we should always remember that, and then we can have open conversations on any of the issues that we want to bring up. So we really want to have sort of this openness uh, for the presentations. Now, I mentioned the phenomenon of microaggressions. 
And there are people who, while they might be climate change deniers and Holocaust deniers, we also have microaggression deniers. Microaggressions are basically things that are racist or sexist that we say unconsciously or subconsciously because they come from um, expecting the person to function in a way that has been cemented in our brains. You know, so one of the examples I recently wrote about was um, an example that we see multiple times at UCD where someone in a math class will go, wow, you're really good at math for a girl. You know, and you're reinforcing the negative stereotype. Women are not good at math. You're female. I'm not going to call you a woman. I'm going to call you a girl. So I'm going to reduce, you know, your femininity to girl. And we're seeing more that people are paying a price for doing that, like Roseanne Barr. You know, and she was shocked, you know, that, that she could tweet something that was racist. And then the rest of the people who were on her show were like, we don't want to work with her anymore. So they had to kick her off the show. Um, and there's been numerous examples. Google example, guy fired for reinforcing a female stereotype. And everyone went, oh, they're too politically correct. This is horrible, too politically correct. And it's like, no, that's what you have to do. Because if someone reduces someone to a stereotype, they cannot have a conversation with them. And if you have a team, they cannot be part of the team. And I would argue that what they might bring to the team is far worse than what they take away from it. Because there's also numerous studies that have shown the more diverse the group, the better the outcome if everybody's treating everybody as an individual, not as a stereotype. And corporations know this. It's like, it's smart. The bottom line improves when you have diverse teams working on problems from different perspectives. You get a better outcome. It's more whatever you need it to be more of more appealing to customers, more broadly appealing to customers, faster, cheaper, because you have a lot of people who are actually engaging with people who don't think the way they do, but who can help them think better. So we really want to engage in fruitful conversations, not dismiss someone. So I'm a big fan of individuality and diversity. Now, we call this bias but it might also be implicit preference because we tend to like people with whom we have common ground, you know, whatever that common ground is. And if you don't see the common ground, then you default to your brain defaults to what do I know about this group? Oh, here's some crap from a TV commercial. I'll just apply that to the person. Um, and as I said, it can come from print media, come from anything. We are seeing a rise in microaggressions on the university campus, and guess what that's correlated with? Social media, memes, all this crap, Instagram, all these things that are very image-driven that just go bam, 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 because if I click on one of them, I'm going to get 100 of them from the algorithm of the same thing. And that's that basis of radicalization of people on, on the internet. So it's really problematic. So. Since I have this fondness for cat videos, I might start meowing pretty soon, but anyway. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, somebody knows that, that, I'm, that I'm a cat person. So, so microaggressions are on the rise, and um, I, it's also because of the tribalness, the shallow tribalness that develops on social media. 
So how many people here has have ever friended someone that you don't like, that you couldn't disagree with more? A couple of people. Most people friend people that think like you do. And it becomes this shallow reinforcement of your whatever identity it is that, that they're reinforcing. So it might be a work identity they're reinforcing, might be today's climate, political identity or religious identity that they're reinforcing, or just beliefs that they're reinforcing. So there's a phenomenon called my side bias. So we tend to seek out people who tell us that we're right. And if I can find 400 people that'll tell me that I'm right, that really tells me I'm right. And I could be dead wrong, but it tells me I'm right. You know, so, so we're doing a lot of the damage to our own psyches by, by being on social media and not understanding the impact that it's having on us unconsciously and subconsciously in terms of um, imprinting, especially if we're seeing something multiple times. Although most of the, of the studies that I've looked at have said, you know, the real culprit is commercials, you know, because we do see those or hear them, you know, numerous times and they get in your head multiple times. Uh, so that, in a nutshell, is what implicit bias is. It stems from this unconscious processing of people into categories, or as we call them, identities. Comes from not having direct experience with an identity, so that identity quickly becomes a stereotype. And you can tell it's a stereotype if someone starts telling you what you think you know, like, how would you know what I think? You're not inside my head. I hope you're not inside my head. You wouldn't know what I think. And, and I think that the way that this has to be addressed is to actually have these kinds of conversations. I gave all of you, we gave all of you the, the Stephen Satterfield um, excellent, excellent blog on being a black food writer and why we need more of him. I highlighted the parts that I think are really important to read where he describes his experiences with, with otherness and his experiences with, you're in charge, and people being pleasantly surprised that he's in charge. Uh, so microaggression can be as innocent, if you want to call it that, as someone being surprised that you're the owner of the restaurant instead of the busboy. You know, they're not necessarily arguing, no, you're not, go find the owner. Or it can be... Um, what's called micro-assault, where you're like, no, you cannot have that role. You know, you're lying. Who is in charge? You know, so those are the kinds of things that we have. Now, one of the main um, issues that we work on in advance, the final topic that I'll talk about, is what we call identity exclusion. Now, I remember I said we have identities based on gender, their identities based on work, and one of the overarching identities of the ideal worker is the ideal worker is someone who will put the business or the job first. If there's an emergency, they'll show up, they'll take care of it, they'll put it first. What does that mean if you're a woman? Wow, you have to put the family first because you're a nurturer, now you gotta put the job first if you want a job, uh, good luck with that. So you constantly get the message that you're not good enough. You know, if you're at work, you're not spending enough time with the children. If you're spending time with the children, then you're not a dedicated employee. Now, where did that identity come from? Identity came from, I don't know, 40s or 50s, when we had a majority of single career couples. We had the homemaker and the breadwinner. 
You could certainly develop an identity of the breadwinner is the person who will let the homemaker take care of home stuff and will be coming in, working days, nights, and weekends, you know, to be successful at whatever, whatever career they're pursuing. Now, back in the 50s, there were somewhere around 20%, maybe less than 20% of the uh, uh, couples were dual career couples. Now it's like 60 to 70% are dual career couples. So we're due for a change. We cannot cling to these old identities that are exclusive of other identities. So the worker identity that excludes the nurturer identity. Because when you think about it, you can be both. And you can be both extremely successfully. And by the way, so many guys are nurturers now that you know, there aren't even guys that fit the old standard model. So what I'm going to say is I'd love seeing everybody here because change is happening <laughs> and we're going to be all be agents of change. And um, I don't know how I'm doing on time, but I'm supposed to leave some time for discussion. I'm good on time? Okay. So I'd like to end it with that. Um, again, thank the organizers. This is a wonderful event. Thank all of you for coming. <laughs>